You're listening to The Voice. Benvenuti a Leuven. Leuven, you Добро пожаловать в Leuven. Bienvenue à Leuven. Willkommen in Leuven. Leuven에 오신 걸 환영합니다. Welcome in Leuven. Hello. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to The Voice on the radio. This is Dashan. Today we have a very exciting episode, I think. It is those rare occasion when a discussion of philosophy is connected to a contemporary issue. In my discussion with Gilel on Foucault and his notion of game of truth and care of the self, we are able to connect those two ideas with the free Brittany movement that is happening right now. In our conclusion, the term that really stands out for me is the courage that expressed by Foucault in his writing and also by Brittany when she resists the conservatorship by using her power of not performing, resisting the oppression that is done to her as a performer. That type of radical freedom seems to echo the motto of enlightenment, dare to know, as Kant describes in his essay, What is Enlightenment? And in Foucault's term, it is to have courage, to use our freedom, to play the game of truth. So without further ado, I will play the first music piece composed by Jean Parroquet, and we'll come back to talk about what is the game of truth for Foucault. Please enjoy. Welcome back. The music you just listened to is composed by the French composer Jean Parroquet, and it is one of his piano sonata pieces. And I will let the guest today, Gilel, to explain to us why he chose this music for us today. So, so thank you, thank you, Dashan, for having me. But I'll just explain very shortly. So Jean Parroquet was Foucault's first uh, partner, boyfriend. Mm. Um, and they um, they had a very tumultuous relationship for uh, for a few years before they uh, before Barakier uh, um, broke up the relationship um, by sending a very dramatic letter to Foucault, saying to Foucault um, uh, that he does not wish to be an actor or the spectator of this debate 
appeasement, as he called the relationship. Um, he told them that he has to come out out of the vertigo of madness Foucault is dragging him into. And so um, it's, um, it's a nice piece to start with um, when we start talking about Foucault, because it was an important relationship for Foucault. Indeed, today our topic is Foucault. And let me just give our listeners a very generic introduction to Foucault. Foucault is certainly one of the most iconic intellectual figures since the 1960s. One might know of him coining such concepts as biopolitics and governmentality. The topics he wrote about ranged from the history of madness, of the clinic, of discipline, and sexuality. So the scope and abundance of the historical material Foucault uses make it quite difficult for me and I'm sure many other people to try to understand him or to start to understand him. So today's conversation is very much about offering one particular angle, starting point to enter into Foucault's uh, thinking. To help me understand Foucault, I have the pleasure to talk to Gilel, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the research group in political philosophy and ethics at the Institute of Philosophy of the KU Leuven. He is a specialist of Foucault's work and political philosophy more generally. I have known Gilel as the coordinator of the Foucault Reading Group here at the Institute, and he is also one of the founders of the Foucault Circle in the Netherlands and uh, Belgium. Gilel, uh, welcome to the show again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's get uh, right into it. So we choose Foucault's thinking in the 1980s, the last four years of his life, as the topic of today's episode. I think Foucault has a very idiosyncratic way of speaking, and his terms are also very creative, non-technical, uh, but therefore ambiguous. So I want to start by asking the meaning of one particular term, which features quite often in this period, and that is the notion of the game of truth. One of the texts where one can find how Foucault uses this term is in the introduction to the second volume of the History of Sexuality, which is published in 1982. And in the introduction, Foucault seems to use this term, the game of truth, to describe or even summarize many of his earlier projects. So here is a quote. What are the games of truth by which man proposes to think his own nature when he perceives himself to be mad? when he considers himself to be ill, when he conceives of himself as a living, speaking, laboring being, when he judges and punishes himself as a criminal, what were the games of truth by which human beings came to see themselves as desiring individuals?" End of quote. So we can see each of the statement refers to one particular project Foucault has done from the 60s onwards, such as on madness and civilization, on the birth of clinic, of prison, and now in the 1980s, it's on the history of sexuality. The, the important point is Foucault considers them as different games of truth. Now, I have a problem uh, understanding this term because the game of truth sounds like an oxymoron to me. So it is a self-contradictory term because a game is by definition 
depending on its rules and conventions which people assign to them. Mm -hmm. For example, there's no reason why kicking a ball into the gate counts as a goal, except that it is how the game of football is played. However, truth, as one might normally understand it, whether the Earth goes around the sun or vice versa, whether the Earth is flat or round, is independent of what people might think of it. That is to say, if it is a truth, it can't be played as a game. And if it is a game, it can't be true. So that is why I find this the term self-contradictory. Okay, so that's my first question for you, Galileo. Can you explain to us uh, what does Foucault mean by the games of truth? So it's interesting to start with, or at least embark on, 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 on this voyage that is called Foucault via this concept of a game of truth, which is, as you said, a later concept. A later concept that is the result of, of a development in Foucault's thinking on the concept of truth. So basically, let's first start to answer that question by stating that Foucault understood his own project and a very diverse project, as, as you've mentioned, very different. He defined his project as a genealogy of truth or as a history of truth. And indeed, in order to write the history of truth, one must write a history of truth without necessarily using the concept of truth. And I think that for many years, this is precisely what he tried to do. So I think the best way to understand Foucault's concept of the game of truth is go back to Wittgenstein language games and basically understand that every language, every act within a language is to be understood as a result of a certain set of rules. However, while for Wittgenstein, the language games are relatively limited, for Foucault, game of truth are much more global. They are a structure of truth within which the notion of truth itself becomes meaningful. And so, for example, when you tell me that the earth goes around the sun or vice versa, well, that is relevant within a game of truth that is Copernican or pre-Copernican, for example. And so does it really matter if that truth has a physical reality to it? Well, Foucault would say that not, not really. So we're not trying to make a history of the absolute truth of physics. Foucault, for example, none of his work has ever commented on what's called the exact sciences. Okay. And I think for Foucault, the exact sciences would be really mathematics and, and physics. And so when he speaks about truth, I think in advance, kind of take these two out of the game. And so what we're talking about is human truth, is the truth that we find the human sciences in social sciences, in the humanities. And so it is a truth that is drastically shaped by what called uh, much earlier in, in, in the 60s, an episteme. So mm -hmm. the rules that set a discursive regime for an entire epoch. And I think that that's what he means when he uses the game of truth. I think it's another way of talking about episteme, nonetheless, without emphasizing or without overemphasizing the deterministic element within episteme that you may have when you read Foucault in the 60s. So within games of truth, well, then you have much more space for subjects to shape the truth which they play with. While you didn't have that in the early Foucault, I think that the later Foucault, precisely with his interest in the subject, wants to leave a space for that. I want to 
pick out the local and global distinction you make between the language game and Foucault's uh, game of truth. For a local language game, I can see I'm playing right now and you are doing it when I use it. And the material is just the things I say. I suppose for Foucault then, he as a historian or as, a, as you said, a, a genealogist, pick out materials from an external archive or something and pick out certain historical era or culture to make a story uh, of a game. And, and that's not really about any individual that is participating in the game. Are we conceiving this game of truth without really seeing the players? I think that you're very right in saying that the players within a game, basically mm -hmm. like players in any game, they have um, sort of, I wouldn't say reciprocity, but they have a relationship to the rules. For example, if enough players and throughout enough years would decide to play the game of chess while allowing the king to move two step each turn instead of one, then the game would, the rules of the game will change. However, we do not decide the rules of chess. We can decide within a specific game, me and you together, that we're ignoring the rules and we're establishing our rules of the game and we're mixing the pieces. Mm -hmm. We can, but we're then not really playing chess, are we? So as long as we're using, as long as we're only players within a game of chess, then our rules have been set prior to our playing it. Mm -hmm. However, it doesn't mean that we have no interaction or no influence over these interactions. The rules are not set in stone. Right. They are never set in stone or else we would be in a situation of complete and utter domination. And I think that that is why the, the term here is useful for Foucault, because it does leave a space, field of possibility, as he called it, for the player to interact with the rules within which they are actually uh, operating. I see. But when the players are playing those games, the rules are implicit. We don't really know the rules as stated. So yeah. in a way, Foucault is telling us what are the rules and how they come to be in his genealogy. No, I, I, don't, I, I think you're very right. I think that we are not aware of all the rules all the time. However, if we transgress the rule of a game of truth too much as an individual, we will be not understandable to those who interact with us. So we would not be able to confirm meaning. So basically, even though we're not aware fully of all the rules, uh, we use them because or else we would not be able to interact with other beings. Okay, then why is the history of rules important for Foucault to cash it out? I, I like that, the history of I think this is personally what Foucault is indeed doing to some extent. He's trying to trace the history of the rules Mm -hmm. Not offering his own rule, but offering his own understanding of the rules at a given moment, which you could accept or reject, because of course it's about historical events and not necessarily about the current moment. But I also think that it is very related to what Foucault will say in his text about the Enlightenment, is that that a history of the rules uh, of the games of truth is crucial in order to understand what are the limits that constitute who we are, and where are we able then to influence these limits in order not to be anymore who we are currently and to be different? The main take for Foucault is that the possibility of difference can only be open or can only be fully open if you do recognize that at some point there is a limit or there is a rule that you are going to some extent break, interpret, 
change, play with, uh, transgress, etc., etc. Okay, then I guess I have a further question about what counts as a history. Not only does he use real historical documents uh, in archives, he also uses uh, intellectual accounts, such as philosophy. You know, for example, in the, the history of sexuality has full of um, accounts of the Stoics and Plato, etc. But then, of course, the problem is Plato doesn't write his own theory as a historical document. He writes it not as representing what has actually been practicing in ancient Athens. So it's almost like using War and Peace, uh, which Tolstoy wrote, as an uh, interpretation of the actual war between Russia and uh, France. Does that distinction doesn't matter to Foucault? He can just use the two freely? It, it's very interesting because, first of all, the question of what is precisely history for Foucault is, I think, an extremely difficult uh, question because it changes, first of all. Mm -hmm. um, it, it changes both in terms of the material he uses and what he focuses on. So, for example, archaeology and genealogy are not covering the same historical materials. Okay, so genealogy is more practice oriented, if we can call it like that, while archaeology is more discourse oriented in terms of production of texts and intellectual uh, productions. So there is a distinction there to be made between the two. I think that for Foucault, a history can be measured via the effect that it has on the way people understand it, which is also a way that you could also measure um, the truth of something. And so he's, he once said that he hopes that the book he has would gain their truth only after they were written and not before. Uh, Foucault is much aware of the fact that the way that he chooses to tell a story is indeed a story. It becomes history once we give value to the convincing or not account that Foucault has given us. So it becomes historical truth only after the book has been published and read. For Foucault, basically, he says he went as far as saying in a famous interview he has on, on the way of writing history, mm. he says that the book for him is uh, purely and simply a fiction. It is not a novel, but it's actually it's a story that somebody else invented or a group of people invented. Nonetheless, it is very much a fiction. So history, to that extent, is a fiction that we make make out or that we write from the endless amount of data that we are actually having access that, that we have access to what kind of data Foucault chooses well I think he chooses at one point he chooses more text and then at another point he chooses much more practices and institution in the 70s and then later on in the later Foucault in the Foucault that we, we we're talking about today it's back again to mainly intellectual representation in books. The reason for that is also because when you focus on the Greeks uh, or on the Romans, well, you have mainly texts yeah. as the material to work with. I suppose if he acknowledges that the truthfulness of something is validified by its effect, but then the question is, what makes his work convincing? It becomes a, a circular argument. If my work is convincing, then it is convincing, then it's a history and it's effective. He must have certain assumption of what would be convincing when he selects those texts. Does he consider that as truth for him? 
or only as what might be true insofar as it convinces others? I think that what is important to emphasize here is that Foucault doesn't understand himself to be separated. Foucault doesn't have an extra territorial relation to our history. Um, he's part and parcel of that history, and he's also part of parcel of the production of truth in our societies, which mean that as such, when you write a history in our society, in our Western academic uh, uh, context, yeah. then there is a certain way to write a convincing history, and there is a way to write something that nobody would read. And it also depends who are going to read you. Are, there, are, are, your, are your audiences going to be philosophers, or are they going yeah. to be historians? Are they going to be lay, lay persons, or are they going to be um, sociologists? And so in each and every field, the mm -hmm. impact or the effect of the of the utterance of the of the of the work would be would be different, and I think that indeed it emphasizes, and I don't think that Foucault would have any problem with that. The strategic element within writing a book as an intervention in our world, mm -hmm. and so there is a strategic element when you write a history of madness, when you write a history of punitive uh, institutions. Well, you cannot go around it. There is a strategy here. There is a calculation. And Foucault would, would be completely, uh, would acknowledge that completely. And then maybe other will critic you as some have done for Foucault. Well, then it undermines the convincing aspect of, of, the, of the work. But that's, that's precisely part of the game of truth of writing history. Perfect. I think that's a very good uh, way to end the first segment. So we will take an intermission. And after we come back, uh, we will talk about this idea of the care of the self, which is also prevalent uh, in Foucault's later thinking. Uh, so the intermission, Gilel chooses the song Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Enjoy.
Welcome back. And the song you just listened to is "Relax" by、uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Gilel, why do you choose this song for us? So the song was released and、uh, and was also banned、uh, in 1984, which is the year where Foucault passed away. And it was a song that was very much identified with them.、Um, so if you see the video clip, you will understand why. It was very much identified with the、uh, leather community, with the leather scene in the 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 gay community,、mm-hmm. um, both in 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 London and 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 in the、um, the West Coast in the U.S., which Foucault was very much identifying with in his later year, and、um, he passed away by a complication of HIV. I think Foucault would have liked the song,、uh, and I think also he would have liked the video clip and、uh, and the controversy, the sexual controversy around the songs. Okay, great. So let's enter into another concern for late Foucault, which is care of the self. This is Foucault's own take on a very old idea, an old idea that goes all the way back to Plato and、uh, Socrates. And for people who doesn't know much about、uh, history of philosophy, Socrates is really the old school philosopher. He's this old man. Who working around a marketplace in Athens and asking people questions about virtue, justice, and so on, and he's condemned to death in 399 BC for impiety and corrupting the young. So the Athenians back then doesn't really know what he's doing, and the idea of care of the self. I'm just going to mention one example uh, occurs uh, in the Apology. So the Apology is Socrates' defense against the charges. So Socrates was talking to the jurors, and he he was imagining that if the jurors let him go now, but prohibit him from doing philosophy, Socrates would not take that deal. He would not stop doing philosophy as long as he is alive. And he imagines that he would say the following words to every fellow citizens: "Quote, are you not ashamed of your eagerness to possess as much wealth, reputation, and honors as possible?" While you do not care for nor give thought to wisdom or truth or the best possible state of your soul, it's a very moving defense of the value of doing philosophy. And、uh, he basically regards philosophizing as a way to care for oneself. Then, of course, two thousand years later, Foucault, at the end of his life, proposes the same thing. Gilel, do you think Foucault means the same thing? When he emphasizes on the care of the self, if you understand the care of the self only in terms of enabling the subject to some kind of knowledge of the self, then that would not be、mm-hmm. Foucauldian enough. Because for Foucault, the the two terms of know thyself and、mm-hmm. the care of the self have reversed their relation. So if in ancient Greece, the care of the self. Was the main the main concept, and under it was know thyself as one part of the care of the self.、Yeah. Today, the care of the self has been erased, effaced, put to the side, and and the know thyself has become the main concept, both of philosophy but also of other fields. And so, in that sense, yes, I think that Foucault does understand at this later stage Socrates as. One of the fathers, one of the progenitors of the care of the self. And then I wonder if the idea of irony plays a role here. So on the one hand, they are committed to what they do, 
but they're committed in a very ironic way. In, in the same way that I also find that in Socrates, for example, yeah, he really believes what he does, but his attitude towards it is also very ironic. And, and that, that kind of distance allows him to be that committed. I'm wondering if that's some feature that uh, you see in Foucault's writing. Very interesting. I think that it, it's very interesting for two reasons. So first of all, irony plays a huge part in Foucault's works. And I think that when this is part of the issue that some of the, so the English translation usually of Foucault's work are very good in terms of meaning. So there is no, it's, it's not a critique of, of that. But something that you do lose in the translation that is obvious is kind of the irony in French. Mm. And the irony is very much a literary tool that Foucault makes constant use of. So it's clear that it, in terms of himself, Foucault does apply a good dose of irony both towards himself and towards others. Mm -hmm. um, he is uh, at times even sardonic. So it's very, he could, he could be very uh, nasty with irony um, mm -hmm. at some, um, in some instances. Mm -hmm. um, however, in terms of philosophy, does he make use of irony? Irony is always used as a tool in order to sting the other. So it's really the gunfly thing. So how do you wake people to their commitment, well, you use indeed irony is one possibility of awakening people to the fact that they're not caring, taking care of themselves. And I think in that sense, it's it's um, it's not irony applied to them. I don't think that that Socrates or other uh, like more more classical cynics like Diogenes would be ironic toward themselves. I mean, they take what they do in a complete and utter seriousness. But that enables them to watch what other people are doing in an ironic sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think we can move on to Foucault's understanding of the self. He's focused on the relational self. And let me just give a quote from one of the interviews. Uh, the interview is called The Ethics of the Concern of the Self as a Practice of Freedom. And that is, in answering to the question whether the self or the subject is a substance, and by substance we mean a particular concrete thing, Foucault says, quote, it is not a substance, it is a form. And this form is not primarily or always identical to itself. You do not have the same type of relationship to yourself when you constitute yourself as a political subject who goes to vote or speaks at the meeting or when you are seeking to fulfill your desires in a sexual relationship. Undoubtedly, there are relationships and interferences between these different forms of the subject, but we are not dealing with the same type of subject. In each case, one plays, one establishes a different type of relationship to oneself, and it is precisely the historical constitution of these various forms of the subject in relation to the games of truth, which interests me. Okay, so I think uh, this quote summarizes nicely the link between the game of truth and the care of the self. But I'm wondering, by understanding the self in relation to other things, does it disintegrate the unity of the self? Because he seemed to suggest that we have to understand the self in a more localized form, as in, in relation to this activity and that activity. 
And what that does away with is this idea of virtues and vices, which is intrinsic. If you believe some kind of substance that's continuous, that gives birth to different activities. So I, I would say that that for Foucault, the selfhood mm -hmm. is so it, it's, it's a good it's actually a good quote. It is indeed not a substance yeah. and indeed is indeed not unitary. It is, first of all, constructed to some extent by exterior processes that we, when you call exterior processes, I'm not talking about exterior in the sense there is a distinction between myself and the world, but actually things that I have no control over. In that sense, the self to some extent is constructed via its relation to institutions, family, uh, church, um, the government, et cetera, et cetera. In addition to that, the self is also, of course, relational in uh, its relation to other uh, subjectivities or other individual mm -hmm. and in that sense it is also it is always part of a power relationship with these individuals mm -hmm. and so every institution or every set of let's say relationships that the uh, self find itself in is something that deeply changes who you are at that given moment mm -hmm. now is there some kind of core that remains similar at all given moment. I, I'm not fully certain that Foucault would say that he knows of such a, a core. He would give us the historical answer, so that at one point there was this idea and at another point there was that idea. But I think that if you ask me, does Foucault really believe that something has become the core of a, a self, the answer would be yes. But it's precisely the moment where the self ceases to exist as a self. So if there is something at the core of the self, it's the moment of complete dissolution. That is the only moment that is, let's say, that is there. But it's also a relationship to some extent. It's a relationship with something that tears away uh, the structures of subjectivity. Then following the same line of thinking, he suggests that we can view life as a work of art. I mean, on the one hand, of course, it makes sense in the sense that we, we see ourselves as this continuing creative process, just like a work of art. So, so I'm wondering if the two metaphors really compatible, namely, mm. on the one hand, the relational sense of self, and then the viewing life as a, a work of art, because a creation of art does seem to be self-contained. That seems to be the goal, to finish the work. But I think that that is the problem with our understanding of art. And I think that, mm. I think that for, you know, if you think about Michelangelo sculpting a sculpture, yeah. it is not Michelangelo putting his will and forcing his will on the inanimate stone. Um, yeah. It is precisely an interaction, a relationship between the stone and uh, Michelangelo and his tools and the end result will contain all of these relationships in it. So the fact that we understand the end result as so-called the perfect manifestation of a, a game or a, a will to, or a struggle of wills between this, the, the untamable, untamable stone and, and Michelangelo as well, I think that for Foucault, it would be much more about the way that you work through something. And mm. in the end, the, um, the result is a compromise between all these elements. And I think that that's, that's the basic idea of the, of the care of the self and also of the technologies of the self and, the, and, and one works on oneself as a work of art.
I think that is the idea. I think that we there is a aesthetic dimension to who we are. Mm -hmm. And in order to produce it, we need a sort of ongoing work, much mm -hmm. like a sculpture working on a, on, a, on, on a stone, from out of which we indeed sculpture something that mm -hmm. we can in the end be proud of, but nonetheless is not the result of our will. It is the result of a, and this is, I think, what we miss in our understanding, it is the result of innumerable uh, interaction and relationships that produces that work of art. Well, on that note, let's talk about uh, Britney Spears. Just to tell our listeners, I mean, it, it wasn't um, uh, our plan to talk about uh, Britney Spears, but uh, Galeo suggested uh, a song just to finish our interview with. And then uh, he mentioned about free Britney movement. And I look into it and study it and, uh, and find the phenomenon the case itself are very interesting. Just to tie the case with what we were saying, of course, Britney as a young singer, a young celebrity, enters into this system of industry of celebrities. Her life is very much about working to make herself into an idol, which is somehow like an art. And then, uh, and she was loved by many and she was admired by many. However, the, the tragedy also lies in the in the relation she have with people who who loves her in a way or how this love is produced for example like media how the industries portrays a young girl long, long story short she was diagnosed uh, as as mentally uh, unstable and the court imposed a conservatorship uh, on her her father becomes the conservator who controls who britney can interact with and the management of her estate. That was 2008. So now, 13 years later, the Free Britney movement is to challenge this uh, rule of the court by saying either remove the father from the conservatorship because the fans believe that Britney doesn't want her father to be uh, in charge of it. And um, maybe more radically, maybe she shouldn't be in this conservatorship at all. It's almost like Foucault's theory come across a, a flesh and blood problem in which all those power relations and what is true and what is not true and what does it mean to care for Brittany for herself, what does that mean, uh, comes into, into play. I think that the main, and I think you're very right, it, it really, like the, the reason why to focus it on, on what's going on, it's, it's, not, it's not to joke about Britney Spears or her situation. I think the Framing Britney uh, documentary, as you just stated, shows how this has become an issue um, on the intersection of several things that really interested Foucault throughout his life. Um, first of all, the relationship between the truth of an individual, the artistic kind of production of oneself and the way that other people see you. So that's a first element. A second element will be, of course, the power relations, the power relation in which she finds herself. So on the one hand, we understand her to be a very powerful individual, a celebrity with a lot of money, etc. Nonetheless, the conservatorship shows that she's actually uh, almost powerless. Um, committed both to a patriarchal authority and at the same time a state authority that has taken away any kind of control over her own life. 
And I think that what is very interesting from Foucault's political perspective is the fact that Britney Spears, by refusing to perform, so this is what she did in 2019, this is actually what started the, the movement, is that because she does not communicate yeah. with people on the outside for the moment. Um, so when, when she decided to stop performing and to stop reacting on social media, that enabled her to resist the condition in which she finds herself, which, and this would be the third element for Foucault would be a radical form of domination that a psychiatric administrative institution has taken hold over your life. And as in the name of normality has prevented you from taking part in the society, in, 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 in society, well, it will be something for Foucault that we need to oppose whether it's in the case of Britney, or I think, and this is why I wanted to, to, to share the song, in the case of conservation of the, of the institution itself, which is highly problematic, because it assumes that other people know best for you. And these other people maybe not be necessarily the people who you most trust with decision about your life. Right. And uh, I think another thing I, I, I want to focus on is this phenomenon of celebrity. Mm. Uh, how, how it magnifies the relational self. I remember part of the documentary, Brittany uh, shaves her head and then she says, I, I don't want anybody to touch me. So many people are touching me. I just want to be left alone. Uh, one of the concerns I have to see oneself as a relational is to deal with solitude, both positively and negatively. So I think this positive reservation of one's privacy on the one hand, uh, I think non-relational, and on the other, other hand, the isolation that one might have when not considered in relation to other things. In case of Brittany, I think her, her resistance seems to, to confirm my suspicion that there is power within one's isolation, despite all the relations which might impose either liberation or uh, restraint of someone. Uh, there's a part of the, the private and isolated self that can either bring one to mental breakdown, for example, but also bring one to forces, to resistance, any relation that is not willingly one enters into. How would Foucault account for the, the phenomenon of isolation or solitude if one considers self as a relational? There is some assumption here. So first of all, I would make a distinction between isolation and solitude. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. Because solitude is very much a um, something that you need to uh, it seems that some people you know have worked a long time in order to construct a very specific sense of solitude so for example or with the hermit that is clearly a relationship so even the lack of relationship is a relation it is it is not a lack of it but indeed in the case of the hermit for example it's a true it's a choice or it's at least it's something that they need to work on through in order to become solitary. However, in the case of, of Britney Spears, I think we're much more talking about isolation. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I would say that isolation should be understood as some kind of enforced solitude. And enforced solitude cannot be understood completely separated from a, a domination. Mm -hmm. And so the, for example, putting somebody on confinement in solitary confinement is a terrible form of isolation put into place by an institution that wants to penalize an individual for some kind of 
transgression that they have committed according to that institution. And so they take away all the possible interaction that they may have, forcing them to exist. But we cannot understand that isolation as something willed or something desired by the, the individual. It is really a form of domination. Um, and about the celebrity aspect, who is in charge of what relation one has with other people? I was looking for uh, a type of freedom that is non-relational. There's something that is unnegotiable. And that type of freedom, that freedom cannot be taken away. And that freedom can be relied on when one is trapped in a tragic situation such as Britney is. If we talk about Britney Spears for a second, Britney Spears' resistance is not to the institution of celebrity, it is to the institution of conservation or tutelage, yeah. as it's called in French, that she lives in. And so that, that is different. She wanted to step away from a certain form of celebrity, which is kind of toxic for her at least, and that is quite okay. But, but to leave that example, to talk about what you asked about freedom. And so I think that at least this is the way, and, and I need to make that a bit of, 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 a, of disclaimer here. I understand Foucault's idea of freedom very much in a battalion sense, which means that it is not negative freedom and it's not positive freedom. Mm -hmm. It is freedom, which is precisely that which one has when one stops being oneself. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a radical sense of freedom. It's, it's the freedom that you have access to only when all things have, have vanished away and, and that you've risked everything and that you have no idea if you come out of this, of this experience alive, uh, sane, stable or whatever. And in that moment, you really touch freedom as much as you indeed touch truth or as much as you touch experience, but you cannot later on put them into words. So it really doesn't, they, they, it's not something that you could establish a policy on or a political collective on, or even an ethic on. You can't, you can't do anything with that, but it is extremely indeed individual, as you say. So that, that element is there. And mm -hmm. it's, I don't think that that is relational. This is precisely the eradication of all relations that enables you that moment of radical freedom. I see, I see. Okay, I think, I think that leads nicely to my last question about what is enlightenment. End of Foucault's life, he wrote a piece called What is Enlightenment? Echoing Kant's famous uh, essay on what is enlightenment. Foucault compares Kantian project in the 18th century to his own age. And uh, just like Kant, who didn't think that his age was the, the, the age of enlightenment, uh, but they're on the way to enlightenment. Foucault says something uh, similar uh, of, of his own time, uh, which I'm going to quote. Quote, I do not know whether we will ever reach mature adulthood. Many things in our experience can convince us that the historical event of the enlightenment did not make us mature adults. And we have not reached that stage yet. However, it seems to me that a meaning can be attributed to that critical interrogation on the present and on ourselves, which Kant formulated by reflecting on the Enlightenment. It seems to me that Kant's reflection is even a way of philosophizing which has not been without its importance or effectiveness during the last two centuries. It connects with uh, Gilead what you said about the radical freedom in the sense that what is enlightenment cannot be prescribed. It is open. Uh, however, the critical work 
that we have towards the past and present is something that、uh, that have certain history, genealogy, and we can critique it. Then, then I wonder, where does the courage come from? Where does the faith come from? So Kant have faith in reason, right?、Yeah. And that's the only way that is remained after the dogmas is gone is dare to know. Does Foucault have similar reason to have faith in the project of enlightenment? So first of all, what we need to remember about this text that this text is、um, a sort of reply or an answer. Mm-hmm. To critiques、uh, and to demands of Foucault, mainly coming from the Frankfurt School, Habermas, Nancy Fraser, and others that have、um, argued that he is、uh, somewhat cryptonormative,、uh, and that in the end of the day he does away with the、uh, project of enlightenment. And so, first of all, I think that is the first thing that we need to remember in this text. So it's a, it's a response to a certain、um, uh, demand. So there are certain limitations and forms of it that are changing according to that.、Um, the second thing is that Foucault's work on Kant, for people working in the seventies or in the eighties, was perhaps new. But we know today that first of all, Foucault's secondary thesis was an、um, an introduction and a translation of Kant anthropology. Mm. Um, and that the Kantian element is omnipresent in Foucault's reflection on the condition of possibility of certain、mm. elements. However, differently from Kant, for Foucault this is completely historical, and this is the idea of the、um, a, uh, historical a priori. Okay,、mm-hmm. that that these conditions of possibility of our knowledge, of our existence, of our experience. Are constantly well. They are not constantly, but they are changing throughout history, and our way to understand them is also changing. So we need to、uh, grasp, at least partially, what is the as like the historical a priori at a given moment. So that is second element related relating to Kant, and the third element. I think that you've kind of answered the question yourself by emphasizing the element of courage here, that we shouldn't understand this text as writing Kant. Or writing Foucault in a very traditional Kantian project, I think what Foucault wants to take from Kant is precisely the courage to know, which is an attitude, and、mm. that attitude is precisely part of care of the self and the techniques of the self because it has to be developed, it has to be worked on. So critique is not just an epistemological,、uh, you know, hat that you put on wherever you're coming into your office. To your academic, to your university office, and you start writing, critique and critical interrogation is an attitude toward the world that requires a certain degree of courage that needs to be developed,、mm-hmm. because critical interrogation puts not only other people's truth into question; it has to start first of all from the critical interrogation of your own truth. Of your own place in this world, and if you put all that into question, then you open a space for radical transformation already within yourself, let alone for other people. Perhaps if they may find your result、uh, convincing, and so I think that that is very different from a purely epistemological discussion that we have with with Kant critical project. Right. So in a way, we can say. Britain's resistance of not performing have showed that courage. In a way, she never know what would 
be the outcome of her not working. But that's the only way she have in order to reject conservatorship. I think that's the only tool. So we need to look what are the tools that are at our disposition. Sometimes the tool that are at our disposition are precisely the tool that undermine our own condition of existence, our mm -hmm. own condition of possibilities. And, and for example, in the case of Brittany, she has decided, or at least we're assuming, we don't know really to some extent because uh, she doesn't speak too much, but she has decided to, to undermine her own career in mm -hmm. order to release herself from a condition she experienced as intolerable. And mm -hmm. to that extent, we could also look at many other forms of more radical resistance than refusing that uh, institution. For example, uh, to some extent, hunger strikes in prison. Mm -hmm. So an individual within prison has a very limited uh, tools available to them in order to resist prison mm -hmm. or imprisonment. Mm -hmm. And so hunger strike, in that sense, is a very strong form of resistance because they take the only thing that they do and to some extent control which is their own body and prevent its continuation in time and space and so you you really when you understand it in this way the forced feeding of hunger strikers is a horrible horrible way it's actually reducing them to state of inanimate object that needs to be fed forcefully in order to take even that very small very marginal yet very strong practice away from them. Okay, I think that's a great end of our uh, episode. Thank you, Galil. Thank you. It was a brilliant, uh, it was a very, very interesting, very invigorating talk. Okay, and I will play our song to, let's say, encourage Britney Spears and uh, anyone who might feel they are under some kind of conservatorship. Conservatorship, indeed. Britney Spears is crazy. Enjoy. I can't